What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark Devone. We'd like to say a very special thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Plotter. Oh, yes. Plotter.com. And Mark, we've been playing with Plotter, haven't we? And one of the things that I really like about this software is it brings everything into one place. I don't know about you, but I'm, I used to suffer from having when i when i'd be working on ideas i'd have i'd have a notes um on my phone so i'd bung stuff down there if i was in the if i was in the dent- dentist waiting room i'd i'd be looking for <laughs> scraps of paper when i suddenly got that idea and then i'd open up my my journal when i got home and stick a few things in there and it was an absolute nightmare trying to pull everything together in one place. And you'd always mm. miss stuff. You'd always yeah. miss stuff. And what I love about Plotter is it has this feature called Automate Your Outlines. And it lets you basically take your entire story and it just shows it to you at a glance. Um, and it, Not just and one story, not just one. You can do whole series with this as well. So if you are writing a series and you want to keep track of what's been happening over the whole series, it does that for you as well. And this is, um, we were talking about this on the uh, Academy. We had a coaching session on Monday and we're talking about outlines and how they can be really, really useful. I find them more useful actually when you're editing, then you can step back from your first draft and look at it and go, okay, what's working, what's not? And this plotter is one of those things, you know, it, it again, so visual, allows you to just to step back and look at the shape of your story and see where it might be a bit wonky and where it might need a little bit of fixing. And it's really, really handy for that. It's brilliant because the other thing is, is you can get, it's a bit like the way I think of it, it's a bit like when you're kind of um, hacking through a forest and then a helicopter like lands, pulls you up and you can just go right above the entire, and you can just get a bird's eye view of things. And what's also really nice is it actually exports the... Uh, all of these outlines to Microsoft Word and Scrivener. So if you're using those particular tools to write your 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 main manuscript in, then you can just pop it straight in and you're good to go. Absolutely brilliant. So if you're interested in having a play with Plotter, mm-hmm. pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash Plotter. And Plotter is P-L-O-T-T-R, P-L-O-T-T-R. And thank you again for them for sponsoring this episode. There's, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes so you can have a, a play around with that as well. And there's a whole free trial thing too. So do you often find yourself hacking through a jungle and then being lifted into the air by a helicopter, Mr. Davis? Only in my wildest imaginations, Mark. Oh, okay, I did. Enough. I did once. Okay, <laughs> true story. I did once go when I was backpacking. You do these crazy things when you're younger. I think I was about 21 and I went to Thailand and I thought it'd be fun to head north to a place called Chiang Mai. Now, anyone who hears that word Chiang Mai, they would go, oh my gosh, you didn't, did he? I went on a three-day excursion, they called it in the tourist brochure. What it was, day one was actually hacking through a for- like a, a, a rainforest. 
And I kid you not, but our, the guy that led us, this, led the expedition of, there were two people from Japan, two Germans and me and an English guy. And our, our guy that led us through the, the forest was called Rambo. No and, way. Uh, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> and he, I'm not kidding you. He was, he was built like Rambo and I felt very, very happy to have him on our side when on the second night we were staying in some village, tribal village, which was an experience in itself. And he was parked outside our hut door guarding us because there was gunfire. There was a there was a gunfight going on somewhere because we were right on the the border, I think, of Burma, and there was all kinds of stuff kicking mm. off. So we, I'm just happy to be here to tell the tale. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wow. But no helicopters. Wow. Although I would have liked one that night, to be honest, I would where's have liked that, one. To where's take that us novel, away. Mr. D? Why haven't you written like know, you know right? your, your own version of the beach? You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Now, Mark, something very interesting, a very interesting news story that that piqued your interest this week. Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation that's been going on all over book social media. And it's it's interesting timing because just, just this last weekend, I did a couple of events. I did a bookshop event, Little Green Bookshop in Herne Bay. I also did a our local church Christmas fair, which uh, Claire did over the summer with her children's books. She said that was really good. And and uh, I thought she said, you should, you know, it's just 15 quid for a table. You should you should go along. And I I, I, I agree to it months ago and then it was coming up in the diary and there's a little part of me thinking oh i should probably cancel this i'm going to sell two copies and that's going to be it if that you know anyway went down a blooming storm you know i I had one copy of the crow folk left i kept selling and 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 i tell you what the number of people who bought all three books as well amazing absolutely amazing went down a storm absolutely brilliant yeah it's just just fantastic you've just just, like (laughs) discovered the ultimate place to sell your book i've got to say mark i've done one too I've yeah. done one too. And we literally sold out. We sold mm. out of Jen's book. We had like 25 copies or something. It was the most ridiculous book sale. So, I mean, you just never, ever know, do you? Yeah. I, and people are so, I think in those kind of environments, firstly, they're very grateful just to see a, a local author who's mm. also quite well known, like a local author just to show up at those kind of events. And people were really, really supportive. Yeah. Wow, was that one of your best ever? Like, um, absolutely. <laughs> that was this was this was like better than Comic Con. It was fantastic, <laughs> and um, oh. the the, the timing is very interesting because uh, I I think uh, there was the the conversation is that there there was um, ALCS who is the uh, the licensing collection company in the UK hmm. that um, if you've got a book they make sure you get you know, the royalties and, and, and lending rights and stuff like that. Yeah. They did a report, they did a survey, which I joined, I, I completed. So I was one of the authors surveyed in this. And they've discovered that uh, in the UK, a writer's median average earnings have dropped to £7,000 per year. Wow. So the average author earns seven grand a year from their writing. Now, in 2007... That was nearly twelve and a half grand. Still wow. not a lot, but it's a drop of forty three percent. And as usual, it's worse if you're a woman, uh, and if if you're non-white, you know they're earning even less. Uh, but here, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker as well. The top ten percent of authors are earning forty seven percent of all income. So there's this huge disparity with the big brand names sort of scooping up all the. Mm. Um, all the earnings. And also I read this week, uh, this was a thing in Private Eye. I was reading, they, they were doing a review of the new Lee Child, Jack Reacher book. Now, Lee Child is, is retiring and his brother, Andrew, 
is taking over writing the Jack Reacher books. So for the moment, they say Lee Child and Andrew Child. And eventually, it will just be Andrew Child writing Jack Reacher. So mm. it's kind of a family business. One is tra- transferring over to the other. Um, and there was it was just a note, this little thing in, in this article, which I thought was really interesting, because they, they pointed out David Baldacci, Michael Connolly, Ian Rankin, Lee Child, all in their 60s. Stephen King, James Patterson are 75 uh, you know, so and the characters like Harry Bosch, the Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch is 71, Rebus is 75. A lot of our male best selling authors are getting on a bit, you know. So, uh, these, these, these are the top 10% who are, you know, vacuuming up a lot of this income, but you know. Death or retirement doesn't, you know, Lee Child is retiring, his brother's taking over. These are going to be Jack Reacher books. Robert Ludlam, when I was at Orion, Robert Ludlam died, I think, before I joined Orion and we were still selling his books, you know, on the back of the Bourne movies and there were new Robert Ludlam books coming out. Wilbur Smith died earlier this year or last year. Mm. And there is, you know, these, Wilbur Smith, air quotes, signed a 10 book deal with Macmillan. You know, there are more books coming. So it looks like, um, you know, you're seeing this huge disparity between these huge brand authors, but no, there doesn't seem to be any sign that publishers are nurturing the new brands. The next you know? generation. Exactly. Yeah. Instead, they're saying, well, I mean, if an author dies, we'll just put their name on something new and get someone else. And this is what I think this is why Terry Pratchett, he, did you hear this? Terry Pratchett, when he yeah. died, he put it in his will. He had his hard drives destroyed. A computer hard drive, which had at least 10 unpublished books on it, was destroyed by uh, he took it to the Great Dorset Steam Fair, where it was crushed by Lord Jericho, which was a six and a half ton steamroller. So he yeah. definitely, you know. So, so yeah, it, and it occurred to me, you know, I had this great event. And one of the best things I've done this year is setting up a store on my website where you can buy books directly from me, and I sign them and dedicate them to you. Um, I've earned more money from those than I have from my publisher this year. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not huge numbers. I mean, the most mo- the money I've made, not a huge amount of money this year, but not a bad amount of money. But most of that has come through movie and TV stuff. Yeah, uh, the publishing side of things has been hasn't been great, and what has come through has come through me selling the stuff myself, getting some stock right. in and selling it on. So you know, there's this huge debate going on at the moment about how do authors earn money. How do we nurture new talent? How do we get people who aren't independently wealthy and have a day job and a family to, to look after and all that kind of thing? How do they look to break through? Mm. So this is, you know, there are no easy answers to any of this, but I know mm. there's a huge conversation going on at the moment. And it, and it, it does continue. feel like we're on, feels like we're on a bit of a tipping point with all these big yeah. name authors getting so old, our publisher's going to finally go, oh, you know, we better do something. Well, I think this. I think there's a there's a there's a there's definitely a sense of clinging on to the past. Mm. I think. I mean, when you look at those stats that you mentioned, and obviously I haven't delved deep into the article, but like 2007 compared to today, what's base? I, I'd love to see the statistic of how many more books are being published overall in the last 15 plus years. Because I my sense is because of the boom in independent publishing there's probably a ton more authors out there and it might yeah. be that the it might be that the the amount of money that's being generated is now being shared across a wider base which is why it's dropped a bit 
I mean, possibly, possibly not. But I think what's more fascinating is where do major publishers go next? Because we hear this in the music industry. We see this, like, if you think about, and again, get me World Cup reference in, but like, if you didn't <laughs> nurture the next generation of, you know, they always talk about, oh, if the average age of the team's in their 30s. If you're not nurturing the new, like, you know, Ramoses of this world that mm. put the oldies like Ronaldo in their place, you know, then you've ultimately got a situation where, you know, you have to regenerate. But what always happens is when that happens, when a, when a team kind of like falls on their face and they realize, God, we just haven't got the, the legs anymore. They have to start their academies again and they have to start from scratch. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably what we're going to see in the major publishing companies. They're, they're, they're hanging on to, because if you think about the percentage of, of income that they're getting from those big authors, to try and replace that overnight is, mm. is a scary thing. So they're going to hang on to that and keep, almost like, like you say, the brand is becoming less about the author. The author almost becomes secondary and it becomes more about the series or yeah. the surname yeah. or the character. And mm. that's what they'll keep doing until eventually they realize that that is not a long-term, not a long-term gain. So I'm curious to see who the new, I think, I think some of the new big names will come through the hybrid route. People that have self-published, established themselves and then been able to negotiate the big Maybe. deals. Maybe. And then they become the next blockbusters. I mean, I know, you know, you've got the the LJ Rosses and the Mark Dawsons of this world who've, well, I mean, Mark Dawson was published by Paramount Berlin and didn't like how he was treated. So he self-published. Uh, LJ Ross took one look at the contract that she was offered and said, no, I'm, she, you know, I, I can do better myself. And I know a few authors who um, have dipped a toe, having had success in uh, self-publishing have dipped a toe into traditional publishing and have gone this is i i i've lost all control i prefer to have mm. control you know there's a there's a prestige that comes with traditional publishing but you relinquish a lot of control so uh, i mean myself i'm i i mean i'm loving my woodville series my publisher's been great uh but i'm writing something at the moment where i'm thinking yeah, I'm, I'm, Which way should I, I go? Yeah, yeah and well, I'm seriously tempted to self-publish. Well, here's the interesting thing, is that before self-publishing became an established way of getting a book out there, people didn't have the option. Mm -hmm. And it's because people now have the option which way shall I go? Shall I self-publish? Shall I go with the traditional? Shall I be a hybrid author and do a bit of both? Because we have the choice today that's one of the most freeing things in the world, but it also complicates stuff because it means there's more permutations. Sometimes it's better to know, okay, this is the only way I can do it and I've just got to follow that path. Now we have more choices than ever, which is very empowering, but it also means we have more choices than ever. We have to kind of try to make the right choice now out of you know, a million and one options rather than a hundred and one options. And I think that can be quite overwhelming for people. And I see that a lot, actually, when I coach independent artists of any nature, whether it's right. music, writing, they're all overwhelmed with making the wrong decision and that creates paralysis yeah. and they end up not making any decision. Um, I think I like the idea of it doesn't matter way, which route you go, just decide for the next book, which one you want to try. You've got your whole lifetime to put books out, ideally. Um, but it's it's we're definitely in a state of flux right now. Um, mm. When we bring the wide-angle lens back over history, 
it might seem like a very short period of time, this 5, 10, 15, 20 years we're going through. But when we look at it historically, it will be the biggest ever change the publishing industry has ever seen. Mm. And we're right in the middle of it, swimming around going, all right, what do we grab hold of? <laughs> it's just like, yeah. so it's, yeah. it's not easy, which is why we're here to kind of talk about it, I think, because I get more fascinated every every episode we do because it we just go deeper into the rabbit hole and you realize, wow, there's just, it just keeps going. There's this, mm. it, this never ending route of options. And then everything's changing around us as well at the same time. I, I think I think traditional publishing should be worried because once these brands start leaving us one way or the other and if they've not nurtured the next generation and that next generation has realized they can earn a lot more money by self-publishing then yeah. uh they're gonna you know they're not they used to be the be all and end all and they're not anymore so yeah. it'll be interesting to see how they react to that do you know what i think they should do major publishers should think about partnering like football clubs do with an academy like, so they basically <laughs> you see where i'm going can you, hear, this, the, you, can you hear the cogs listen listeners listen very carefully listen you can hear the cogs whirring, can you hear the cogs whirring? <laughs> because actually when you think about it i mean you know it's the, it's the academies of this world the writing schools of this world that nurture the new talent and, and and are actually doing the nurturing and working with you know authors of every age group but who are moving in and getting that level of support that they need to then go into the world. So weirdly enough. <laughs> Can you think of one off the top of your head? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't think of anyone actually. But you know, if any major publishers are out there, like like connect with some writing schools and maybe yeah. that's do some deals with them. And uh, yeah, because there's people mm. out there that we know, I mean, just from our experience as well, I mean, joking aside, but we know that within the bestseller Academy, we have, we have potential writers of that kind of scale in the future, don't we? I mean, we there are. I I know. I mean, I know a couple of our academics who have published books who were as good, if not better, than stuff that was published. You know, at the publishers where I've worked, who lost patience with the industry and just thought, yeah. "I'm putting this out myself." Yeah, and that is the loss of traditional publishing. That's yeah. traditional publishing's loss. And the gain, their own gain. It's those the, the yeah. authors. It's their own gain, and they, you know. Yeah. So that this is, yeah, I think we're on the cusp of something here. Interesting. Watch this space, folks. If you're interested in this, if you've got an opinion on it, drop us a note. Pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com and drop, click on the contact us and tell us what your experiences have been. Maybe you're a traditionally published author that's thinking of jumping ship or maybe you're an independent author who's fed up with <laughs> with self-publishing and desperately still wants to link up but wants doesn't want but wants the actual support and nurturing um that maybe used to happen in a in a and also we're very broad brushing this i mean there are there are great publishers out there and they're they're not mm. so great publishers they're great individuals in publishing companies and not so great individuals so yeah it's it's we're very we we know that we're generalizing a lot here and we're not trying to dis you know, no. the industry in particular, but I think it's important that there's a bigger strategic thing that needs to be talked about here across yeah. the whole industry. I plan to continue doing both because there are, yeah. and that's my choice because I can. Absolutely. You know? Well, yeah. that's the freedom bit, right? And I think that's, yeah, yeah. that's where it's incredibly empowering. Fantastic stuff. Now, talking of published authors. Nice segue. Nice segue, because there's a lot about publishers in this. Interesting, yes. there's a lot about publishers yeah, yeah, in yeah. this, particularly around book titles, if you've ever been interested in how that works with publishers. <laughs> but Mark, tell us about our guest today, Elizabeth Noble. 
Elizabeth Noble is a Sunday Times number one best-selling author who sold over a million books to date. Her debut novel, The Reading Group, uh, she wrote that to avoid going back to work. It became an instant number one bestseller. She was nominated for Newcomer of the Year, the British Book Awards. Book sold over a quarter of a million copies. She's written many bestsellers since, and her latest, Other People's Husbands, is her 10th novel. And we discuss how her debut had a ready-made structure, writing big casts of characters, and how she got back into writing after a six-year break. Brilliant. Fascinating stuff, folks. So you know, strap your seatbelt and have a listen to this. This is a fantastic interview. And let's listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Elizabeth Noble. Elizabeth Noble, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Mark. Nice to be here with you. Oh, we're delighted to speak to you, especially as you've got this fantastic new book out, Other People's Husbands. Now, you've often written about families and those twisted, complex relationships that we all know about, but this is a very different kind of social group. Tell us tell us about the characters in Other People's Husbands. Other People's Husbands is about a group of, I call them schoolgate friends. Um, they are a group of women around my age, the danger years, and they have been friends since their, since their little ones were at, were at nursery, essentially. So it's one of those um, almost closer than family groups of friends who have literally watched their children grow up and they've grown together, been through all of the ups and downs, the roller coaster that is ordinary life. Um, and they've reached this point, the children are grown up, the nests are empty. And it's about um, the damage that can be done to a group that believes its bonds are as tight as bonds can be uh, by the bad decision of a couple of members. Right. And this is Six couples and their children. Some of the children are adults and they've got their own complex lives. I mean, that gets with each couple you introduce, that gets more and more complex by an order of magnitude. That that was that a very daunting challenge to write, thinking about all those lives and how they would intertwine and how you would keep track of them? No, it it's 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 that's an interesting point you make. I'm often asked about it and a, a I have never been able to do it any other way. When I'm, we all have big lives. We all have um, a big cast in our life. And when I write fiction, I don't find it easy to write a, a, a small cast. Um, and I, I know that sometimes my readers will say uh, it took it took me a while to figure out who was who. Um, but then, and that, and that's right. what I'm. That's what I'm hoping. I'm not trying to make it difficult for readers, but I find it more authentic when mm. people have a lot of a lot of um, moving parts in their life. And I and, and I don't always find fiction authentic when it's just um, when it's just a, sing, a single sort of storyline. And 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 you, I often find myself thinking, well, doesn't this person have a mother? Doesn't this person have friends she goes for coffee with? And it frustrates me slightly as a reader. So um, I'm aware I'm aware of the potential criticism of doing it that way but mm. it's the only way I know how to do it and and this book has um I think of it as a Jilly Cooper list do you remember when you know riders and right, um right. they they all had the cast list in yeah. the beginning and they're actually quite helpful because you can kind of flip backwards and forwards and, and check who's who and this has one um so no for me I don't find it complicated at all because they are very real in my head 
And so I, you know, that would be like me confusing my neighbor on the left with my neighbor on the right. You don't do it. So for me, when I write them, no confusion. I recognize that occasionally it takes a, a reader a little while to to sort of sort of sort them out. But I, what I'm always hoping for is that it's worth it in the end. That's brilliant. How how are you though? Keeping tra- are you just keeping track of them in your head, or are you using you know post-it notes or cards or any any kind of system like that? Yeah, I have um I have notes, um, and it's uh, we always joke in my house that it's the stage when my husband and children, if they're around, think I'm not doing anything, and I say I'm growing my characters. Um, and so I usually have. A, a notebook in which I will have a lot of information about them that probably never ever makes it to the page. So it make, but it makes them real for me. So I will know what kind of music they listen to. I probably know how they voted in Brexit. I probably know, um, you know, what they dress like. Occasionally, how they smell. So they 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 do sort of germinate in my head, and they become um, really real to me. And I find that a really useful part of the process because then. It's not so much um, you deciding what they would think or what they would do. It's kind of them informing you about what they would think or what they would do in a given situation. So it, it, it kind of makes it easier to keep them separate and keep them authentic and keep them true to themselves as characters, if that makes sense. It does. And all that detail you're sort of building up as you go in these notebooks, is that is that something that you're doing before you write the first draft or is it as you're writing? How does that work? Yeah, usually before I have the idea um, and the and the idea sort of sits and, and it will lodge itself and, and almost sort of demand to be demand to be written. Um, and then the characters come and then I write the end, um, right. which which is something I have done with all except my first novel, every every subsequent novel. Um, I sort of write probably a prologue and then my ending. And um, the ending can change. It's not set in stone, but it, 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 for me, in the writing process, it's incredibly helpful to have the destination um, at least plotted out for the time being. Very good. That's fascinating. And we'll come to your first novel in a minute because I, I, I really want to know how that came about. Um, but I'm, I'm fascinated by this, you know, we talk about this is a a group. You, you said the schoolgate friends, but of course there are families in there. Families is a a constant theme throughout your books. But in particular, the thing that I've noticed, it's usually when families reach a turning point. And it's funny because I'm going through this at this at the moment. My, my my younger son's off to university. My my daughter's got you know she's in a relationship. The last sort of 20 years have been kind of set in stone. We've all got our roles and now the roles are changing. And that seems to be something that happens in your books. It's about those pivots in family life. Is that something you keep coming back to? Are you conscious of that or is it just just uh, just something that happens? I, I just think that with, without it, you wouldn't you wouldn't have a story. You need a shifting you need a shifting sands mm-hmm. in order to, to hook a story onto it. Um, it wouldn't be any fun to read a book about a family where all the balls were in the air because that would just be a juggler. 
um, with all the balls in the air. And I think balls need to fall before you have a, a point of interest, if you like. Um, in real life, we, we like it the complete opposite. We like all the balls yes. in the air all the time. But if you're wanting to make a decent story, you really got to drop a few of the balls. And then, then the story is about how you pick them up. I think that's probably what I would say about that. Yes, yes, we do. We do enjoy it when it goes wrong for other people, don't we? Amazingly, <laughs> <laughs> most of us are no strangers to Schadenfreude, but we don't. We don't like to admit it. <laughs> now, I, now, I hope you're not. Don't think I'm being rude, um, Elizabeth. But I, uh, I saw in another interview that you described yourself as nosy. And uh, Erica James said something similar about herself as as well. Do you think this is essential for being a writer? Let's call it curiosity. Do you think this is essential for being a writer? I think if you're writing the type of books that I'm trying to write, I think it is. And I and I I I, I call it nosy to save someone else the trouble of <laughs> of labelling it as such. But really, it's a kind of. Um, I think all people are interesting. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has stories um and experiences and it all i think if you're a writer you listen to all of it and you pour it into your giant melting pot and mm. you know you never well in i certainly never write autobiographical fiction but right. i think my characters have little bits of of all the people i've met and spoken to so yeah i think um you have to be a curator of stories to be a storyteller and there's nothing, there's no original thought, essentially, is there? There's nothing I can write about that happens to to people that hasn't happened to someone. Um, so it's it's a it's about how you in, how you interpret it and how you weave it together to make your own unique story. But yeah, I, I, I would sit with anyone and see if I could get them to tell me tell me stories about them. Mm. Yeah, this I think it is is developing a, a kind of a radar for that kind of uh, little little bits of interest in other people. You know, you'll meet someone and go, oh, he's a character. I'm going to, you know. Do you, keep, do you keep, again, do you keep these in a notebook? Do you keep a record of these or do you just file them away mentally? No, I think they just sort of soak in. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I have a, an elephantine memory for things I don't need to remember. I can't remember most of my passwords <laughs> and occasionally not my, you know, not my PIN numbers, but I remember you know, things that someone told me on a ferry 15 years ago. And clearly, um, clearly that's just how my brain works. <laughs> well, we're very grateful that it does. Let's talk about where it, where it all started for you, um, which, I mean, your debut, The Reading Group, which came out 20 years ago, which uh, is... <laughs> listeners, uh, um, Lizzie just pulled a face. Um, let's, let's talk about what led up to that, because... Uh, um, as I understand it, you you started writing because you uh, you wanted to bring up your daughters, you wanted to take a career break, but that was also an opportunity to write. So, can you tell us about leading up to that and and what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read English literature at university, mm-hmm. uh, and then I went to work for a publishing house, one of the one of the grand old dams of publishing, um, all those years ago. And I spent a lot of time um, trying to get noticed. Uh, and taking home books from the slush pile to read and, and reading everything I could so that I could, you know, try to get, get along. Um, and I often had that thought of, I'd like to do that. I could do that. I'd like to try to do that. Um, and then when I got married, I had two babies in close succession and I really didn't want to go back to work because it was so much fun being at home with them. Mm. And I thought, well, this would be, 
the time to give it a try. It, it, it will work or it won't work. Um, what I had, what I had picked up most from my time in the publishing world, short and unillustrious though it undoubtedly was, was that um, everything was hugely competitive, and I needed a hook. Um, I needed to be able to sell my novel in two lines. And my great piece of good fortune was that in 2003, everybody was talking about book clubs and reading groups. Yeah. They were just, they, I mean, they've been around for decades. I'm sure, I'm sure you know, um, some of the oldest reading groups have been around, you know, for several generations. Mm. But Oprah had just started doing her book yeah. club in the States. And people, everybody was either talking about joining one or joining one. And I suddenly thought I'd, I'd had some characters and some storylines floating around in my brain, but I had, I'd always known I needed a hook. And I just kind of had a light bulb above the head moment. I, my, I was invited to join a reading group, as so many people were that year. And I suddenly thought, gosh, this would be amazing because you could put anyone you want in this reading group, um, as long as you can come up with a plausible reason for how they know each other. So you can, it's the perfect umbrella setting for a story. And the other great gift that I've always been really grateful for about it is that it gave me a structure. As a first-time novelist, I was very comfortable writing a kind of 50 pages of my book. And um, what was really harder was think was plotting the whole, the whole thing. Um, mm. But because the, because these characters were reading group friends, uh, there's my novel. They meet once a month for a year, 12, yeah. 12 months. Um, and it, I've always been incredibly grateful for that because it created a kind of skeleton for me to hang my novel on. And I sometimes wonder whether I would have been able to do it if I hadn't had that. Um, the third piece of great good luck was that I had a really pretentious silly title for this first novel which I was very much wedded to and my brilliant publishers at, at Hodder kept using the title The Reading Group and I just kind of ignored it and I thought that's, <laughs> that's their working title for it but we're going with the other title and of course they won why wouldn't they and thank goodness because um, as my husband who's also in publishing likes to tell me the one I had was a warehouse filler of a novel, whereas a book called The Reading Group, published in 2004, <laughs> had, um, had an immediate appeal to a really big base of uh, yeah. readers because they were such a zeitgeist thing. <laughs> can, can you tell us what that original title was? Oh, I knew you would ask me that, Mark. <laughs> um, I pretend I don't remember, but it was, in fact, Skipping Over Treacle. <laughs> yeah, the warehouse filler. <laughs> I love it. I do love it. I do love it because it is. That's a fun title. It's playful. Tells you absolutely nothing about the book. <laughs> no, no, that was just me and my me and my little imagination. But the the, pub, the publishers knew what they were doing, and my goodness, they were right because the week the week that book published, it went straight to number one in the Sunday Times list. And whatever delusions I might have about myself, I do know that that was solely because it had that great title hopefully it sort of kept selling because it was a great book but it was that that made it the big success it was off the bat so thank goodness for them well let's talk about that i mean you know debut novel smash it straight to number one what was that what do you remember of that experience because we it's, it's the thing we all dream of but it's uh 
what was it like? Was it was it everything you expected? Were there surprises along the way? I mean, obviously you'd worked in publishing, so you kind of knew what that could be like. But what was it like for you? Oh, it's, it's wildest it's wildest dream stuff. There's no there's no getting away from that. You it, it's it is beyond your wildest dream when your first novel comes out. It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, it's it sounds silly to say, but you. you Having it read by people other than people who know you is a very uh, weird mm. and discombobulating feeling, and you feel quite vulnerable. Um, you you can also feel quite upset if anything says unkind or anyone says anything that demonstrates to you that they've misunderstood something you're trying to say. Yeah. So it's a very weird process. The actual day that the charts came out, I'd been um, with a publicist from from Hodder stock signing uh, in central London, which is a very um, thankless task because you, you, unless you're big and important, you sort of stand in the corner and sign a few books yeah. on a teetering pile of books. And other people look at you as if to say, are you vandalizing those books? Yeah. And <laughs> someone will come up, someone with a, better brass neck than me will come up and stand beside you and look at your book and flick through it and then put it down and, and walk, walk away. away. Yeah, and I've you'll had be that feeling, <laughs> you're thinking, right, okay, I'm really, um, this, uh, yeah, this is, this is really not good. So I can actually remember that I had persuaded the publicist that we needed to go into a shop that had a sale on and, and I was therefore in a changing cubicle with no trousers on when she took the wall. <laughs> <laughs> that the, the, the numbers were in and the numbers were really good so there you go is that now your lucky changing cubicle do you go there every tuesday now when the figures come in oh, I, I should i should wish i could still get into those trousers 20 years remember 20 years now does that does that spoil an author your first novel going straight to number one do, do you does it kind of do you expect it to happen every time now? Because I know I used to work for a sales department in a publisher, and that was always the fear. Because we got them to number one once, they're going to want it every time now. So, what, what's that, what's what's the experience been like since? Well, the elephant in the room is that it's never happened again, right? Um, and I can <laughs> I can tell you all the reasons. Um, I think I think they've mostly gone into the ten. But it's a very different. It's a very different and an, and an ever changing world. Yes. Um, and yes, I would I would say at the risk of sounding ungrateful, it was a it was a glorious, wonderful, happy thing, mm. and a bit like uh, you know winning the U.S. Open. You, no one can ever take it away from you. It happened, and yeah. they you know yeah, forevermore yeah. it can be a strap line on your book. But yes, it it does it does make some fairly big shoes for your next book to fill. And yeah. of course, writing is a, a, a lonely and solitary and self-doubting um, experience. So yes, it, it made me very frightened to sit down. And number two was much harder to write than number one, because in a way I, with number one, I just kind of, just kind of doing it with no, with no, no real knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then of course you, you have, the knowledge and you are trying to replicate it um and you're trying to do something that people think is just as good if not better and i would say i know everybody's different i always i love the fact that if you've got a hundred writers in a room you'll get a hundred completely different yes. stories about that experience and how it feels but but for me i have found i've almost found each one harder than the last one and i look back on writing the first one as as almost a time of you know a time of blissful ignorance yeah. um 
it gets harder each time for me, actually. Yeah, that's not unusual. I'm interested, particularly in that second book, because you said from the second book onwards, you'd written the ending and then gone back to the beginning. What was it that that sort of triggered you to do that? That that was this something that you learned in the editorial process of the first book, or was it just you thought this is how I have to do it now? Well, I spoke a little bit about the structure of the reading group. My mm. second novel, I obviously didn't have a nice, helpful yeah. sort of paint by numbers um, way of doing it, and I think I think I I found it clarifying to think right here they are. This is where they're starting. Where do I think they want to end up? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was, this is, forgive me if this sounds pretentious, but I always remember this from university that there was an author that, um, I think it was George Eliot, although I, I need to check that if I'm going to say it. But she, she her view of uh, life and fate was that we're all on a ship and you can't change the destination of the ship, but you can move around the ship. Right. That's the thing I've sort of, I've always remembered and I use I used that idea to think right okay where is the ship of this novel sailing to yeah um and then and then that gives you the freedom to change the journey as much as you want to or you need to Excellent. but you've got you've got your sort of safe port in front of you um and I'm I love it when you hear particularly a thriller or a mystery writer saying they don't know who done it when they start I can't I can't get enough of that because I I just cannot begin to imagine how that process works for them um but but for me it works to because because my the central core of what I'm trying to do with every novel is make you the reader care Mm. that's I you know we all read for different reasons and most of us read for a kind of smorgasbord of reasons but my defining mission when I'm reading whether it's a book a shortlisted prize or a book I bought at the airport for a holiday I want to care about the characters and Mm. so as a writer I want you to care about my characters and so I think that maybe deciding how I'm going to leave them frees me to write the rest of their story um if that doesn't sound absolute um, nonsense, I think that's what that's about. I love it. I love it. I do. I do a kind of a similar thing. I um. I I like to know where where the finish line is as well. I like to, and then I go to the opposite yeah. of that, and then take them through that journey and torture them along the way. And that's yes. um. And and I think again, if I'm looking for things that all of my novels have in common, it is a redemptive flick of the tail. I can't really leave them alone unless there's um unless there's an upturn um, at the end and you and you sort of know that broadly they're going to be okay. Um, and at the beginning, I think I was a bit too neat and a bit too determined to, to square off everything and leave it bandbox. And I think as I've gone along, I've gotten slightly more confident about leaving maybe a bit of a question or certainly a sort of a slight fill in the gap for the reader. But nothing annoys me more than a novel that isn't properly finished. I mm. can't bear it. Um, tell me what happened. They're your characters. Yeah. It's your story. You tell me the end of it. And um, so I've always sort of, I, I write like a reader, if that if that makes sense. Um, and things that annoy me as a reader, I try really hard not to do as a writer. Brilliant. That's, that's superb advice. I want to talk about one of your books in particular, Between a Mother and Her Child, which I think is a very traumatic novel in that it deals with, uh, a couple 
breaking up after the death of a, a teen, a teenage son, I believe, isn't it? And I know that you took a long break after that, uh, as it was, it was because it was very affecting. Can can you talk about that and the break and what what brought you back to writing after that? Yeah, I can. I can talk about it, and I say at the beginning that I have the permission of the child involved to to talk about it. Well. In my personal life, things were were very difficult at that point. I'd been living in the States with my husband, who who was working there, and my two daughters. And um, I, one of my daughters was very deeply unhappy in America, and I felt a great need to bring her home. And it didn't work with my husband's career. My 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 husband had com- commitments, and um, he's the sort of man that doesn't walk away from commitments. So we we lived a weird sort of hybrid life where I came home with the girls and lived in a house and he stayed in New York where we'd been living. And um, rather than fixing my daughter's unhappiness, it it sort of got worse. And and she was in a very, a, a very bad place. And I was at home without my husband, who is my, my main person. And I was at the same time as my personal life was difficult and I was incredibly worried about both my children, but specifically one of them. I was then sitting down every day to write the story of, of a mother who had lost her child. And the, the two things sort of for the first time ever, my writing life and my personal life completely overlaid each other. And because I was the only adult in my home, there was no, um, no leavening at the end of the day. So I was living uh, her life and my own life, and neither of those lives were in a very good place. And I think I probably sort of dug myself into a, a, a pit writing it. Right. And I found it difficult always to talk about it. And I sort of thought, this is a masochistic uh, part of my life at this point. I'm not going to do it anymore. So I, I s- took a step back. Um, and at that point, I really wasn't sure whether I would ever be able to write again. Uh, and it it was about it was about six years I think mm. six years or so before um, all of the things in my life resolved and I felt the urge to tell to to tell stories again it was a it was a scary experience actually to because I'd always kept writing I always thought writing was the best job ever mm. and it was a perfect job to do while my kids were small and and a wonderful you know, a, a, a fabulous thing to do. And it writing was always a lovely uh, job, but it stopped being that with between a mother and her child and became something darker for me. Did you have, um, did you have another novel sort of lined up after that book that you had to abandon? Yeah, several. Um, I mean, there are, there are outlines and synopses that I was under contract to be honest. So, so the publisher, although everybody has always been very, very kind and very understanding. I, I, it's, it's a job, and I had a contract, and I was supposed to write lots of things. But I, I, for me, if I mean, I think you can put down, you can put words on a page, um, if if you have to, but that doesn't mean they're worth reading. Um, mm. And nothing I, nothing, nothing I wrote during the time I was trying to to fulfil my contractual obligations ever struck me as as any good. Um, and I was never, I wasn't proud of it, and I wasn't involved in it. Somehow, it was, it was almost going through the, going through the um, machinations of doing it without any of the soul. Right. So, uh, yeah, there are there are a few notebooks kicking around here somewhere with some disastrously bad ideas and opening chapters. I think. Right, but uh, when was the point where you felt that you 
got your mojo back or was it just that you missed it or that enough time had passed? Well, my, my personal stuff all, all all sort of came good. My daughter mm-hmm. grew up and 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 um, came through that phase of her life unscathed. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. My husband came home. Uh, we moved house, um, and so I think uh, I think that's not nothing. But but also I I had an idea. I had the idea, uh, and in fact I. I had a person. I had Iris, who was the um, the star of the novel that came after between a mother and her child. Um, Iris just popped popped up and um, said, "Hey, how about it?" And <laughs> it was lovely. It was it was you know, because I had I had really sort of wondered whether it would ever happen, and and right. uh, then Iris happened. So brilliant. Thank you, Iris. That's fantastic. Thanks for thank you so much for sharing that, Elizabeth. That, that can't be easy. What. What's uh, what's coming next for me, Elizabeth? Ah, uh, well, um, I am. Um, <laughs> I'm. T- there's a there's a war in my head. I have another contemporary fiction novel um, uh, that I got the idea for from a chance remark a friend made at a dinner party in the <laughs> summer. But I, I I'm actually working on um, a piece of historical fiction, which is a massive massive departure for me, um, and terrifying because, gosh, that's that's a that's difficult. Yeah. You kind of write a page of story and then you have a page of questions next to the page of story. And, and this is about, um, this is about a period of history that's been written about a, a lot, but I think I found something that hasn't been written about. And a lot of the research I've done has been anonymous. Um, and I feel a huge, a tremendous responsibility to get it right. When I tell the stories of these incredibly um, wonderful people who aren't here to tell their own stories. Mm. So, gosh, I, I, I write, you know, uh, he was on the train, and then I think, oh, was there a train from yeah. there to there in this <laughs> time period? And, it, you know, that, what was he wearing? What was he eating? And and how did it smell? And um, so God knows when I'll be able to kind of produce anything to show anyone on that. But I, I found a thing that just really, really got me excited, and I thought, no, I'm going to try. I'm really going to try. Brilliant. No, I, I, my books are all set in 1940, and I just get to the end, then do the research because I find it, it that thing of oh gosh, was yeah, did, did they would they have had a kettle? Would they, how would that you know just these tiny day to day things drive you absolutely nuts? So I, I worry about them exactly. at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's how you do it. You yeah. you write your story and then you add your history. Ah, yeah. that's interesting. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm writing that down, Mark. Well, I got that down. I, I, that's a tip we got from Ian Rankin on the podcast because he said that he just writes his his you know his his Rebus thrillers, then he goes back and does all the detective stuff and researches that because then he knows he's only researching the stuff that he needs for that particular story rather than getting bogged down in research. So we've we've uh, yeah. yeah that's- we That's thank you really for good that. advice. I, I also I also slightly feel at the moment, and I, I'm I'm going to use a word that I'm that I'm sure most writers that you speak with have um, in their heads, which is procrastination. Oh yeah. And historical <laughs> research is one of the great legitimate forms of procrastination <laughs> in my world, where I think, mm, and I fall down a rabbit hole on on the laptop, and the morning has gone. So um, I think I'm going to have to sort of find a very disciplined way of doing yeah. it. And yeah. um, that sounds like a good one. <laughs> Brilliant. Sorry to have put off your procrastination. Uh, I, I do enjoy it myself, but yeah, it does it does help. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for that. Folks, other people's husbands and all of Elizabeth's books are out there 
now. Go grab them, and you you definitely won't regret it. These are big emotional roller coasters that are just full of great character and life. So, Lizzie, thank you so much for speaking to us today, and hope to speak to you again soon. A great pleasure. Thank you. Oh my gosh, Mark, lots to unpack. We're going to have a lot to chat about in the extended edition of this podcast this week. But let's dive in first and talk about the multiple characters that she talked about. This is fascinating. Big casts. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough writing a protagonist and an antagonist. Yes. I mean, (laughs) really, we're talking about an entire street worth of of couples in, in Elizabeth's kind of um set up there and especially in an early novel as well where you know you're starting out that was some some challenge it's a, it's a she made a really really interesting point which is that if these people if characters in books don't if you can't at least hint at their extended lives then they become unbelievable and i know that it's something that when i'm writing i'm so focused on the character that you start thinking well hang on who who are their parents? And if they've got parents, do they have aunts and uncles? And if they've got aunts and uncles, I mean, are their cousins and are their brothers and sisters and are their best friends? And suddenly, with one character, you could be thinking of a dozen to 20 additional characters who could possibly walk through the door at any moment. You know what yeah. our lives are like, the sort of phone calls we get every day. Yeah. So it can get a bit overwhelming. So I'm I'm aware of who those characters are, but then you have to make a choice about who's important to the story, who's relevant to the story, who do we bring in? But of course, the thing with Elizabeth is she's writing family dramas. So you can't really avoid this. The family, you know, if you're writing about modern contemporary family lives and all the ups and downs of that, then you kind of do have to bring in all those couples. You know, this this has got six couples plus kids, you know, and as she said, we've all got big lives. Um, but what she, what I thought was really interesting is she said that she gets feedback from readers who say, took, took me a while to figure out who's who, but then. So readers yes. do, you know, you, you do have to trust the reader, I think, sometimes. It's hard though, isn't it? Because like I, 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 when I started reading Game of Thrones, like within the first chapter, I was like, what, who? Oh. <laughs> and I almost thought I'd have like a, a notepad, but just to kind of like every time I, I heard a new name, I wrote it down and had to kind of almost be a detective so I could, because my brain doesn't work very well when I'm given... Like, give me a couple of characters, I'm good. <laughs> Chuck in like 15 different, that I'm com- I don't even know who belongs to what clan or, and, and so I think it's, it's, it's a lot to ask of an author, but if you can make it work, then it's, inc- it's an incredible accomplishment. Yeah. Um, but also I think it, it also reminds me a bit of how people must write for soap operas. Like if you think of East Enders, you know, there there are main characters, but it's the lives of many people, and it's how they all interact together. And uh, now, with EastEnders, of course, they have uh, you know thousands. It feels like of episodes to develop those characters and storylines. But to to kind of have six couples plus kids in one book, that's incredible. Um, but it's about how you hold on to them. I think in those first two chapters to keep them to get to get the familiarity. Yeah, you don't want to overwhelm the reader in the first couple of chapters. It's, it's you know, you, there, there is a skill to drip feeding this information in. There are very basic tools you can use to help the reader as well. I mean, um, you can have a cast of characters at the beginning. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. I, we've, uh, I've, I, yesterday I interviewed Simon Scarrow coming in 2023. Fantastic interview listeners. Talked to Simon Scarrow, who's 21 books into a series. With, and these are Roman historical epics. So, you know, you open up the book and it, you've got a cast of characters and you've got maps. So if you ever do get lost, 
they're right there. You can just flick to it and go, oh, okay, yes, all right, fine. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. You know, Brilliant. so if it's um I know some people might resist that, but I know readers find that really, really helpful. Absolutely. No, for sure. That's brilliant stuff. Now, one of the comments that you said that was interesting was this idea of being nosy as an author. Yeah, <laughs> I love curi- this. It's curiosity. It's nothing nosy. You're just curious. You're just curious, you know. <laughs> but it's true, uh, isn't it? Like, how curious are we as writers? I think I think writers are natu- have to naturally be curious about the world around them. That's part of what fascinates us about writing and about people, about the world that we see and about our own in, in insular kind of, you know, interiors of our own lives as well. But I, I love this. We all know those kind of people, though, don't we? They're very, very good at just constantly asking questions. You, it's, it's something I've cultivated over the... I never used to be good at it, but it's funny. When I started working in publishing, because you end up... You might be taking an author around for the day from on bookshop signings, or you might be sat next to someone at a conference dinner or whatever. So, you, you one, you're on your best behaviour because you're representing the company. But also, you have to be... You have to give... Because very often authors as well are quite shy creatures, so you, mm. know, you have to draw stuff out of them. And it's something that I've, I've sort of nurtured over time. So just this event, you know, this church fate event I was talking about at the weekend... Uh, I was talking to one of the organisers, a guy called Les. Hi, Les. And, um, you know, I got his life story and it was great. And all the places he's been and the people he's met and he was talking about overcoming illnesses and big turning points in his life. And, of course, there are bits of Les that, whether he likes it or not, are probably going to end up in a novel one day. Totally. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not, not all of Les, not all of Les, you know, because yeah. that's that's not fair on him. But there will be elements of him and elements of other people and people that I meet that that uh, go into into stories and characters because it's those little bits of realism that that we love. Interesting. And we also have this idea that we have to travel somewhere far away to 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 find those characters, to find those stories. But it reminds me that there are stories waiting for people on every park bench. Yeah. Right. And and if you think about, I mean, later on in the extended, we're going to talk about, you know, where you get inspiration from or where the surprising places are that you can get inspiration from. But it's really important to to remember that you never know where your next character is going to come from. And it probably will be on that bus journey or, you know, sitting on that park bench and someone coming along. Um, and I think it's, it's, it, it the, the world around us is fascinating. The, and it's always changing and always surprising. And, um, you know, having that curiosity, having your radar open to that, I should say, is where mm. you're going to find the really great stuff. It's right there in front of you. Absolutely. And it's not always strangers. It can be your own family, you know? Oh, uh, if you, completely. Uh, you know, if you, you want sit- dysfunction, then that's the place to go. <laughs> <laughs> Especially my I, I say that I say that, and Jess, because I love my family, and, but but it comes from a quote that I once heard that um, every family has its own brand of weirdness. Oh yeah, no <laughs> I love that. Right, we Absolutely. all do. It's no wonderful. Question. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Just got to ask the right questions. And yeah. Listen, well, and actually, now's the time. Like most people, here's here's a positive thought to put into people's minds as we come into the Christmas world. Like, let's we're looking forward to our Christmas special in a few weeks, and we're actually going to go and go into the forest today onto the, well, it used to be the Queensland. I guess it's now the Kingsland because you're allowed in Canada to chop a, down, chop a tree down in the, in the Queens, on the Queensland or the Kingsland in Canada. Right. You know that? You're allowed oh. it in some like 18th century edict. Every peasant can go along and get, get a free tree. Oh, we'll have to have but, a word um, with Charlie and put an end to that. I know, I might, I might have to keep my eyes open. <laughs> but, um, 
But here's a thought for Christmas. Like everyone, there's always a lot of sense of dread, especially now post COVID. We don't have the excuse of, oh yeah, no, we can't, we, we can't, we can't be up this month. COVID. Yeah. We all have to get together with our families again. And isn't it brilliant if we were to go into that rather than dreading it and thinking, oh, Gordon, Uncle, I shouldn't say any names because there's probably going to be lots of Uncle Charlies mm. and George, right? but, <laughs> but uncles and aunties, you know, the, 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 the very colourful characters that many families have in their life. It can sometimes be a dreadful kind of like countdown and to like, can we just get to Boxing Day, please? Mm. How about you flick it this year and say, look, I'm going to be given some brilliant material. So bring it on. Let's have the craziest Christmas ever. And I'm going to have my notebook. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, record, record it on your phone with the knowledge. With just the say knowledge. to them, here's a sherry, Gran. Tell me, tell, tell me, me something you've story. never told anyone else before. Yeah. 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 Or let's, <laughs> let's, um, yeah, get a board game out where, where they have to talk about their life or something. But brilliant. It's just not cards <laughs> against humanity because we know how it is. We always have to mention that every Christmas, don't yep. we? Because I never forget that story you told me about your grand. But moving on, if you, if you missed that, you've got to go back. You've got to go back a few years. Let's talk about, I love this line that, that Elizabeth said, making readers care for your characters. Mm. I mean, she pretty much distilled the entire process of writing the, a novel. It all, it all distills down to that one line. Stories are all about empathy. You know, it's about telling someone else's journey of change and, and making you feel it, which is really hard to do. You know, we talk about things like save the cat in order to, you know, um, feel empathetic with the character, but it's not always that easy. And I love what she says. She said, I write like a reader. Things that annoy me as a reader, I try not to do as a writer. And it's very clear that she's not one for taking shortcuts. She's not one for avoiding difficult topics or subjects because they might be tricky to write or hard to write. And this is something I've found as well. You know, earlier on as a writer, you come up against something that felt complicated or hard or morally complex and you just thought eh, let's skip around that let's get to the action but i've learned that actually if you can address that stuff head on and be as honest as you can about it that's when you get people messaging you when your books come out saying that made me cry that really moved me that that you know i was really thrilled by that or it made me laugh you know whatever emotion whatever your intent is as a writer I think if you know that that kind of brutal honesty and kind of raw emotion, that's something that really uh, really affects readers as well. Um, mm. And it's uh, it's it's tricky because you're putting yourself on the line, you know, and you're putting your your heart and soul into it. But readers really respond to that, and they they recognise yeah. it, and they recognise shortcuts and when you're being cheap and not giving them the whole truth as well. I think when you when you're willing to go deep, it, then the reader goes deep with you, and I think that that's where real kind of strength and bonds are connected between writers and readers. It's you know, absolutely. I think they sense that they sense, then they know that the the, the the author's kind of really gone out on a limb, and mm. uh, it's worth remembering. That it's worth the effort, absolutely. Now we would love to chat about so many more things in this uh, interview and we're saving it for the extended version. And why is that folks? Well, we do it because firstly, we just don't have enough time to talk about everything we want to, but we'd also like to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, we would love, love to have you on board as a patron and patrons and Academy members get the extended version where we talk for another 20 minutes. And this week we're going to chat about 
the importance of notebooks for germinating characters, writing prologues, then endings, um, how to sell your novel in two lines, looking at where inspiration will potentially come from. We're going to also talk a bit about this brilliant um, area of, of the benefit of having a publisher to help you with your title, which can make all the difference. Um, we're going to delve a bit more into Elizabeth's kind of wildest dreams of, of selling, you know, having a number one um, debut novel, and then also some of the challenges that came from that. And uh, talking about taking a break from writing for whatever reason, whether it's mental health or otherwise. Uh, and then finally, we're going to talk about the importance of remembering that every writer is going through something. So if you'd like to join us for this amazing extended episode, and folks, we have had so much incredible feedback. Thank you to everyone who's written to us. You mm. said, I love the extended. It's so much, so much good stuff there. Please, please subscribe to the podcast. Um, it will help us make this podcast, keep this podcast on the road for you. And it uh, gives you even more kind of in-depth content about the, uh, the incredible adventure of writing. So pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to learn about how you can get access to the extended version. Yeah, wonderful stuff. Got lots of little wins this week. And thanks for everyone for getting in touch with those. Uh, one on the Academy from Julian Schaefer. He said, finished my first draft and it feels good. That is a good feeling. Congratulations, Julian. She said, I'm taking Mr. Stay's advice and putting it away. I'll decide on January 1st if I'm ready to start the first edit or revision or if I'm going to let it sit for a full six weeks. Originally, I thought six weeks sounded too long to wait, but right now I think it sounds perfect. I'm having wine to celebrate. And as soon as it gets dark, the Christmas lights will be glowing. Okay, I've been turning them on every night for over a week, but tonight they will at least seem brighter. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Julian, huge congrats. congrats huge, huge Julian. congrats on that. And the six-week thing, this came from, um, it was, uh, I think it was John Gerald, the agent, who told me this at Galantz Fest. He, he was doing a talk at Galantz Fest, and it works for me. Six weeks is the point where I come back to it, and it feels like it's almost been written by someone else. So, um, uh, you know, I think it's definitely worth waiting that time. Um, have you noticed a lot of people have been uh, tagging us because we're cropping up on their Spotify most listened to podcast list? This is absolutely yeah. lovely. So. Uh, one of them was Susie Edge did this. So, uh, yeah, we're number one on her top podcast. So thank oh, you. As, she, as she's put, I should probably write a book, which she has done. Do check it out. Major bestseller this year. Um, so, yeah, wonderful stuff. So thanks to everyone who's tagged us on that. Kate Baker. Now, Kate, great academy. Fantastic. She's got her book coming real soon. Uh, she, now, we're asked for her wins this week. She said, I've got 21 spaces on Rachel's Random Resources blog tour, all filled within two hours of her posting on Twitter. Now, Rachel's Random Resources is one of the great blog tour organizers, certainly in the UK. Um, and for Kate to get 21 bloggers all clamoring to read and review her book, this is fantastic news. So this is absolutely brilliant. So congrats on that Kate but now Kate says I now have the dreadful feeling people have waited so long for this damn novel it's grown into something in their minds way bigger and better than it actually is imposter syndrome alive and well but I can still see the win you can Kate people are going to love this book I've read it and absolutely loved it as well so fingers crossed uh, it's, it's all, all going to be great um, Jeff White, who uh, started up, you may recall Jeff, you know, fantasy author, writes as GM White, uh, but he's also doing, we're talking about author's income and having, you know, different sources of income. He's been working as a copywriter. He says, my first 
content writing client love the first draft of a post I write for them so I'm cracking on with the second draft tonight so it's little things like that you, you know it's not all about novel writing you can do copywriting all sorts of stuff that you can do to earn a, earn a little bit of extra crust uh, Julian Barr dropped a sign says I'm about halfway through writing my narrative history book and my editing business is booked until the first week of February and that worries me because I might have something for Julian to edit very soon so I know I need to get in there and book him stop mentioning him on the podcast <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said it's been a tough few years, but never made it this far without the encouragement and inspiration you guys have given me. So that's fantastic. Julian. And I think that's great. And Julian's a great example of someone who took the plunge. You know, he bungee jumped, he you know quit the day job and went full time. And I'm so, so happy for him that that it's working out and he's he's seeing those those bookings coming in. So congratulations, Julian. And inspiring everyone else who's maybe sitting there thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe I need to do this as well. Uh, fantastic. And last but by no means least, uh, Michaela Limpkin, who's with us on the Academy, she says, my book looks fantastic on Amazon's Look Inside feature, and I'm being officially launching the book tomorrow night. So it's being launched on the 8th of December, so it, it would have been gone by then. But you can grab a copy of Michaela's nonfiction book, How to Love and Be Loved, Tiny Steps to Connecting with Love and Life. Uh, you can grab a copy of that over on Amazon right now. So do check that out. And congratulations, Michaela. It's uh, it looks absolutely amazing. It's and, absolutely uh, we, brilliant. And you know, you know what I love about this? I love journeying with authors when they go through that first launch, the firsts of everything. Cause I remember yeah. doing that with, with back to reality and it's so exciting. Like the first, really the first paid time you see your page on Amazon, the first time you see your cover, the first sale yeah. you make, the firsts are brilliant and worth all the effort folks. If you are working through that first book still and you're like, it's never going to get done. Keep pushing through, keep pushing through because there's so much excitement that awaits you at the other end. So much joy and feeling of accomplishment folks. Cause I always say this, you write a book, no one's ever going to take that away from you. It's a mm. life accomplishment. You'll lie on your deathbed feeling still proud of the fact that you achieved something that so many people in the world dream of doing, but never, ever do it. So keep yeah. on pushing. And uh, I think it's it's uh, super important as well to remind people of how you can get in contact with us, Mark. So what the best ways, there's so many different ways to get in contact with us on that. Absolutely. I mean, go to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. You get a direct line to me and Mr. D. You can drop us a line there. Facebook, we're Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram, we're at Bestseller XP. So drop us a line there as well. Fantastic. And don't forget, folks, if you would like to get the writing habit of a lifetime, it's 200wordchallenge.com. Try our free challenge. This is a great time to sign up, actually, just before the new year. You might want to go out the gates on January the 1st. Well, now is the time to sign up, do a bit of warm-up exercise, get a few days in under your belt before the new year, and then change the rest of your life by potentially writing um, many, many, many books that may never happen without this challenge because we've seen that. So make sure you go along and sign up to 200wordchallenge.com. And don't forget the Academy is opening its doors again uh, at the beginning of the new year. Uh, so if you would like to find out more about what the Academy is about, pop along, listen back to episode 400 on the podcast where we interviewed uh, six Academy members and we documented their incredible story. And if you want to hear that podcast, you can just go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com because it's on the front page of the Academy now. So pop along and have a listen to that. Um, sign up to one of the webinars that we've got, one of the free webinars to find out more and submit your application um, this side of 2022 to avoid disappointment. So that's Academy bestsellerexperiment.com all links in the show notes folks all links in the show notes 
Brilliant. And a big thanks to our editors, to JD and uh, Dave. Big thanks to all of you for supporting this podcast. And uh, big thanks to Plotter, who supported this podcast today as well by yes. sponsoring it. And if you would like to sponsor a podcast, then drop us a note. Just pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com and get in contact. So, Mr. Stay, have a fantastic week. Can't wait. This build up to Christmas. We're going to have Christmas special coming up. Um, mm. And also talking about, folks, a little preview of goals for next year as well, if you're interested in kind of getting something under your belt before you start next year. Listen out, we've got some great shows coming up over the next few weeks. Really so it's hard. a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>